This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Adam Kilgore from the Mississippi Bar Association. This morning, we'll talk about attorney ethics. Who do you contact to complain about an attorney? And what are the ethics rules that attorneys must follow? If you have questions about attorney ethics, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after the news. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Adam Kilgore from the Mississippi Bar Association. This morning, we're going to talk about attorney ethics. If you have questions about what rules attorneys must abide by, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and I am really excited to have Adam Kilgore on the show today um, in his role as general counsel for the Mississippi Bar. Uh, he ensures that lawyers uh, follow the ethical rules and, uh, and treat their clients uh, the way that this profession should. And we take this very seriously. Lawyers take our ethical uh, requirements or duties to our clients very seriously. Well, we hope we'll have an extra good show today so that all of your listeners at uh, the Mississippi School of Law who are learning to be lawyers can uh, take this advice. And any of our Mississippi lawyers who podcast listen to us will be able to maybe pick up something new. Well, that'd be great. Um, and uh, yeah, we do. One of the required classes uh, that every law school has to teach, and this is uh, the, the American Bar Association accredits law schools, and they don't require too many classes. There are a lot of, most of the classes that we offer are not required by the American Bar Association, but a, a course in ethics is required for every law student at every accredited law school in the country. All right. 
Well, and our guest today is Adam Kilgore, who's been the general counsel for the Mississippi Bar for 13 years, where his duties include reviewing, well, he's been with the Bar Association for 13 years, the general counsel for 10, where his duties include reviewing all bar complaints, conducting investigations regarding bar complaints, and prosecuting attorney discipline cases, among many other things. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Liz. And uh, Professor Gershon, it is good to uh, see you as well. Uh, I am glad to be here. And uh, we'll enjoy talking about uh, this topic, and uh, it's something we do take seriously. Well, and this morning we already have a call, so I'm gonna we're gonna bring in from uh, Meadville, John. Welcome to In Legal Terms, John. What's your question? Uh, my question is: <clears throat> If I buy a house trailer from a person that has a clean, clear title on it, and the check that I hand the person says "house trailer by two thousand." And the bill of sale that we fill out in front of the notary uh, clearly states on it that I'm buying this house trailer and that she will keep insurance on it till I pick it up, which I didn't know exactly when I was going to pick it up. But 90 days later, I notified her that I was going to pick it up. Three days after that, a bankruptcy attorney called me and said she's in bankruptcy now, and she just filed it. And do not contact my client again. And I hire an attorney out of Jackson and take it to federal court, which I feel it should have never been in federal court because the house trailer was purchased free and clear 90 days before I picked it up. And I go to federal court six different times, and the judge rules in her favor and not mine, nor would he interview any of my witnesses, including the uh, vice president or the president of the bank, and she got to keep the house trailer. I had to pay my attorney $10,000. I paid her attorney way more than $10,000. Where are my legal rights at? And remember, the house trailer should have never been in bankruptcy. John, I appreciate uh that there's a lot to unpack there, uh, and and we're limited in our scope on what we can talk about today. Uh, you know, fr- from the standpoint of of trying to navigate a case and and where it goes. You know, the you know I'm going to come from the attorney perspective as to what the attorney can do, and potentially if you're wanting to file a bar complaint against a lawyer, uh, and that would need to include some type of ethics violation. It sounds to me that uh, what you're concerned about is understandably the underlying case. What what the situation was, uh, you know, d- was justice served in, in your eyes? Uh, who's responsible for what? Uh, in listening to that, I was listening for whether there was anything related to an attorney potentially committing an ethics violation. So p- people file bar complaints with the Mississippi Bar because they're concerned of an ethics violation, and oftentimes that can also include aspects of the case. So, you know, the bar complaint process, which is, is what we're going to be discussing this morning, and some things related to ethics and attorneys, you know, you certainly could explore filing a bar complaint, uh, and you can contact the Mississippi Bar at 601 948 Two three four four and speak to our consumer assistance program. But I will tell you, it sounds to me most most of your question is about the underlying case and not necessarily about the ethics uh, or a potential ethics violation of the lawyer. Well, the ethics was the lawyer knew that that was my house trailer. He knew that. 
he also knew a year before she got that house trailer here in Franklin County, she burned her house trailer down, collected the insurance, bought this house trailer, got caught, had to pay all the money back, and had a $50,000 bond owner in Franklin County. Her, ju- her, her lawyer knew it, and the judge knew it, and my lawyer knew it. But he was going to show me what he could do. I spent a ton of money trying to get this house trailer. I still don't have it. I don't have any of my money. It's all gone, and it should have never wound up in bankruptcy. John, I, I, I can only imagine the frustration you've got uh, in, in this situation and in, in what to do. Um, the, the, the bottom line is, you know, a lawyer assesses a case. They have an idea of what they think should happen and what can happen, and their job is to inform the client of that and making them aware of the possibilities. This would not be the first time that a lawyer felt like a case was going to turn out one way and it went the other. Uh, and, and I'm sorry that you're in this tough spot, but there's only so much a lawyer can do. We have a system of justice and we have a court system and we have a judge who makes these decisions. And it's pretty common for at least one person to leave the courthouse unhappy, if not both. Uh, so I, I, I wish I had a better answer for you on that. But it strikes me that your, your question is really about the underlying case. John, we appreciate you calling in, and any of our listeners, we uh, wish you could call in if you have questions about uh, professional ethics for attorneys. Um, uh, Adam, tell us about uh, for attorneys. What are what are their guidelines? How can if they need help if they feel like they're in the middle of an ethics dilemma? What helps guide them? We have the Mississippi Rules of Professional Conduct. Those were adopted by the uh, Supreme Court of Mississippi. Those are based in large part by the uh, ABA, or American Bar Association, model rules. Uh, Each jurisdiction in the country uses that as the base, and then uh, their local Supreme Court, or or whatever the highest court is in that state, will adopt those rules. So our our Supreme Court has adopted those. Uh, They are a a good set of rules, uh, and they are there for guidance. Uh, They have changed over the years. one of the things that I've learned over the recent years is, is is the history of ethics from a legal standpoint. And really much of what we do started with Watergate. There was an assumption prior to Watergate that people just kind of did what they were supposed to do and you could trust it. <laughs> uh, after Watergate, I think uh, eyes got open significantly and so it shifted from there. So the, these rules are guidelines and uh, they, they are rules. It is a shell type of situation as opposed to a should. So they're really more than guidelines actually. And so lawyers have that available to them. They also have, uh, we have ethics opinions on the, on the Mississippi Bar website anybody that's interested, that's www.msbar.org. And those ethics opinions are designed to try to answer good general questions that can come up on a regular basis for lawyers. And so that resource is there, too. The other resource that's out there is uh, my office uh, gives continuing legal education, uh, and we do receive phone calls from lawyers on a regular basis. Uh, uh, Internally, we call them can a man questions. Can a man do this Uh, type of scenario? Uh, But we we walk people through those situations, and uh, we don't give stamps of approval or disapproval, but we do usually speak in code. It might be something like, I wouldn't do that if I was you. Uh, but we, we do try to help people through, and, and each of these are unique. Conflict of interest uh, questions are fairly routine, and I've never seen two that were identical. 
but but we've got a good set of rules, and I, I think we're able to navigate it pretty well. So these are options open to uh, the attorneys of Mississippi? Correct. Okay. Well, great. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a break now. Uh, when we come back from the break, we'll continue our discussion for guidelines of professional conduct for attorneys. If you have a question about the laws concerning professionalism of attorneys, give us a call at one 877 MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as, a, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Mississippi Bar Association General Counsel Adam Kilgore, and this morning we're talking about attorney ethics. Give us a call if you have a question about the disciplinary process for lawyers. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Well, Professor Gershon, uh, what, uh, uh, what are some of your have you dealings with the, the Mississippi Bar Association? Well, it's, been, it's a great bar. Here in Mississippi, we're lucky to have uh, such professional lawyers. And uh, I will say, you know, I, you, I teach the ethics class here uh, in the spring. One, I'm one of the people who teaches it. And, um, you know, I use the Mississippi Bar website a lot in teaching that class because uh, there are rules on lawyer advertising up there. There are things about what happens if there's a fee dispute. If you go, anyone that wants to see uh, a little bit about the process can go to their website and look under ethics and discipline. And as Adam mentioned, they have ethics opinions. Uh, they have a disciplinary process. They even had uh, some good information about uh, what kinds of things get, get lawyers in trouble the most, uh, what, what do clients complain the most about. So I've had nothing but good dealings with Adam and the, people who, the great people who work at the bar. Well, thank you for that information. And uh, my daddy was a lawyer back in the day, and, uh, you know, 30 20, 30, 40 years ago, you couldn't advertise. When Tell us about how that changed and, and what are the rules for that? I, I, we do have advertising rules. They are contained in the Mississippi Rules of Professional Conduct. Uh, if you're really interested, you can look at Rules 7.1 through 7.7. Uh, the basic premise there is that an advertisement cannot be false, 
misleading or deceptive. Um, people are pretty creative on how they word things, so you can get right, you know, right up to that. Uh, and you know, protection of the public is an interesting conversation in that in that realm. Uh, we certainly do need to make sure that things aren't false, misleading, and deceptive. Uh, at some at some level, I do feel like it may be antiquated from the standpoint of trying to protect people from a time period back when. Advertisements meant more. We're all we all you know are born seeing advertisements virtually yeah. now. So I, I I think it's a little bit different. There's been some interesting Supreme Court uh, uh, in, uh, United States Supreme Court decisions that have talked about freedom of speech, and that can get uh, 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 pretty interesting to navigate. But the bottom line is, is uh, advertising lawyers in Mississippi have to submit advertisements of a certain type. So advertisements you see on television, uh, you might hear on radio, things you see in print, certain types of those have to be submitted. Um, and we've got a set of rules, and, and uh, there's also a, a way for lawyers, if they want to confirm whether their advertisement is within the rules, they can uh, pay for an adv- uh, optional advisory opinion on the front end. So there there are mechanisms in place. It may surprise you, we don't get a lot of complaints about advertising. Uh, I've gotten a couple uh, over the years, and mostly it was about, I'm tired of these lawyer advertisements during my late-night <laughs> television show, as opposed to what the content's about. But right. yes, there there are regulations in place there to protect the public, and, and I do believe that they are effective. All right. Hey, Adam, can I ask a uh, would you please talk a little bit about the difference between advertising and solicitation? Because it does seem like solicitation is, is more regulated than advertising. Uh, they're both ways of reaching out to the, to the public. But, uh, you know, we, we see billboards, that's advertising. You know, how would you, how do you deal with direct solicitation by lawyers? Sure. There is only one mechanism for lawyers to directly solicit someone uh, in a non-advertising setting, and that is to send a letter uh, that's set forth, I, think, I believe it's in 7.2 and 7.3 of our rules. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, unless you have a prior personal or business relationship with someone, a lawyer cannot go and solicit someone for their business uh, other than sending them a letter. So, uh, you know, scenarios such as, uh, you know, this is an extreme example, but I think it's the one that comes to mind. If there's a if there's a car accident and a lawyer sees it, can they go by and help the person uh, just like any citizen would help another person? Absolutely. They can't go up and hand them the card right then and there, but they could send them. Uh, a, a letter later that says, it's my understanding you had this car accident. If uh, you're in need of legal uh, representation, I'm available. Uh, but there, you, you know, you can't pay someone to, to go talk to them f- on your behalf. Uh, you know, and I, I think those protections are Im- important. One of the things that I try to remind attorneys is how scared people are when they have a legal matter. Uh, genuine fear is part of the equation. I think it's important for lawyers to remember how scared people are. And I think to the degree, and and I'm certainly speaking to our listeners here, if you have a legal matter going on, recognize how scared you are. So, you know, my definition of client includes the word vulnerable. So if you're getting a divorce or you're you're in the in the midst of a uh, you have criminal proceedings against you or you've suffered an injury in which you need an attorney right under the surface if not above the surface is is fear and so trying to manage that on your own and being a good client and the lawyer being sensitive enough to that situation i think is key to effective representation and you know the lawyer's biggest challenge is managing client expectations and good communication can go a long way towards that. 
All right. Well, we recently received a, uh, a piece of paper in the mail. Um, my daughter's cell phone was one of the phone numbers that a cruise ship company had called uh, uh, and, and solicited for a cruise ship. And I guess there was a class action lawsuit being filed against the cruise ship company for the I don't know if it was a violation of do not call list. And so we got a letter uh, asking if we wanted to be part of a class action lawsuit. I guess that one piece of paper was a permissible solicitation. Well, and that that probably wasn't even solicitation. That was actually something that was required as part of the class action settlement that, mm-hmm. that is most likely going on where you have to, where where the the one of the parties is obligated to communicate yes. okay. um, and, and make you aware so you get to opt in or, right. or opt out right. um, and you need to make an informed decision on that. I, I've had a couple of those come in too and uh, they've been credible and I opted in and got a check for $100 at right. one point. So, right. you know, I, I wouldn't expect uh, uh, a big uh, um, a windfall right. Uh, right. there, but yes, you know, th- but that would not be solicitation. Oh, that would okay. just be part of the case. Oh, all right. Well, we have a couple of calls that uh, we'd like to get to from Tupelo. Leslie has a question. Go ahead, Leslie. You're on in legal terms. Hi. Good morning. Um, just in case uh, you guys have any extra of those mailers for the class action suits, could you send them to me? Because I've been getting <laughs> a lot of those calls from the cruise ships. But um, I actually have, I'm going to cheat. I have two questions about ethics. And so I'm going to give you some tag words to remember. One is discrimination and the other is pro se. So first question about discrimination uh, what do the ethics rules say about private practice and discrimination, just all in terms of um, minorities and whatnot? And then the second question is um, sort of along the lines of solicitation and advertising. How far can a attorney go to be helpful to a person before they become their client and not just pro se? So those are my two questions. Okay, I, I want to go in reverse order on that because I'm going to want you to repeat that other one in a minute. But your question was uh, pro se and how far a lawyer can go. Uh, the the rules are not clear on that. Uh, my favorite law school answer of all time is it depends. Uh, I learned during law school you better put something under that besides it depends. But it, it, it really does depend on how far they go. So the example that comes up in uh, ethics classes, and uh, Professor Gershon may, may well have another example that he uses uh, in his ethics classes, you're a, you're, you're a lawyer, you're at a party, someone comes up to you and they start asking you, you know, basic legal questions. I had this happen. You know, what, what, what you know, what, are, what can I do next? What do you think? Um, a lawyer can engage in that conversation and give some general insight as to how the legal system works. But at some point, if they undertake too much of a discussion and start giving legal advice, they may well have inadvertently undertaken a representation. Um, that is so fact dependent, it's hard for me to state, you know, blanketly when that happens. Um, but that is something that, that attorneys are warned about. But at the, on the flip side, it's also a bit of a challenge, too, for an attorney to, um, you know, part of the way people get business is people come up to you and ask questions. So you kind of have to, you know, be wary of that. Um, you know, uh, usually it's family or friends, so hopefully that's easier to navigate, although we warn attorneys uh, on that, too. Sometimes the most difficult client you can have would be a family member or right. a close friend. Right. So, exactly. you know, you have to kind of balance those things out. What is the risk of becoming an inadvertent advocate for someone? Well, uh, you, you could, and we really haven't seen it manifest itself uh, in the bar disciplinary process. It's more... Mm-hmm. 
of of a theory that it could happen. Uh, I've I've been with the bar for 15 years now, and I've not seen it come in play in a case. But the risk simply could. I'm sorry. More of a CYA rule. Yes, yes, yes. So the the lawyer could could um, find themselves having giving given advice to such a degree that they are obligated to represent the client, whether the client has paid them or not. Uh, th- that that would be in theory what could happen. Um, but really, it's more just uh, about keeping up the the walls and the boundaries. You know, lawyers don't have to have a written fee agreement unless it's a contingency fee case. But I recommend to attorneys, if you're undertaking representation, to have a contract to clearly state what the representation is about so no one gets confused. Uh, And that formalization can go a long way towards protecting everybody involved. And Adam, I I always recommend to my students, when you're not going to represent somebody, send a non-engagement letter. So, you know, just send a simple letter saying, okay, we talked, but, you know, I am not your attorney. That that should protect them. And it's all about communication, it seems like. It seems like, you know, one of the things that happens between human beings in general is if the, the rules aren't clear and the communication is not clear, that's when we get into problems. Leslie, did you have uh, what was the first part of your question? Yes, ma'am. The first question was, um, this is sort of, I think, based on the model rules. I'm also cheating again in a different way. I'm one of the directors of the Young Lawyers, so I'm, I'm coming from a level of education most callers probably don't have. Um, but in the model rules, somebody brought up that there was a, um, a model rule regarding discrimination against clients or potential clients. And that would be obviously regarding race, um, I guess, uh, you know, probably religion, maybe gender identity, sexuality, all that good stuff. Um, I don't think it's in the Mississippi professional rules of conduct and ethics, and conduct and ethics, but it's, um, I think it's one of the model rules. So I just wanted to see, um, does, does anybody know anything about that concept? It's something I've recently heard of and was curious about. Yes, uh, I'm very familiar. You're referring to Rule 8.4G of the model rules, uh, for any of the listeners that want to look that up. And uh, you, you stated it well. That's exactly what it's about is, is prejudice and, and discrimination and, and that being part of the rules of professional conduct. It is not directly part of our rules now. Uh, that is something that the bar is looking at. Our ethics committee is in the process of reviewing that rule. The Supreme Court of Mississippi directed us to look at that rule. And so procedurally what will happen is the ethics committee is going to finish its work at the bar make its recommendation to the Board of Bar Commissioners, which is our governing body. They will then take a position in, in, in with the court as to whether they think this is a rule that needs to be adopted in Mississippi. The ultimate authority as to whether that's going to later be included in our rules will be the Supreme Court of Mississippi. So that, this is something that's very much on the radar and, and, and very a very timely question. Excellent. Thank you. We're so glad that Leslie called in. Roger, we'll get to you right after our break. Um, When we come back from the break, we'll talk about who do you contact if you need to complain about an attorney. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert uh, from the Mississippi School of Law, and today we're joined by our guest, Adam Kilgore from the Mississippi Bar Association. <coughs> so, Professor Gershon, do you have anything to, to chime in so far? No, I think Adam's doing a great job. We, uh, I, I will add in terms of discrimination that that rule does also apply in the model rules that judges use, too. So judges are under their own set of rules, and uh, in fact, um, in talking about discrimination, judges are really not supposed to belong to organizations that discriminate, such as uh, certain, there are certain country clubs that still are restricted, uh, and judges, uh, in terms of being impartial and fair, should not be members of such organizations. So, that, you know, that's a, an important rule for lawyers and judges. Well, we're so glad that uh, this profession, which is so much needed in our society to help everybody uh, play by the rules, has its own rules for keeping itself uh and the straight and narrow. So we're going to go to uh, Florence. Roger is calling in. Roger, welcome to In Legal Terms. What's your question? Well, it's not really a question. Uh, it's, it's a comment that Adam knows me well, and uh, and perhaps uh, the professor. I, after, gosh, four, more than four decades of practice and being a trial judge, state court trial judge, and being an advocate of ethics as a subject, uh, I have a comment. I tried for years, and I'm still trying, to get the deans of the law schools to put more emphasis on ethics. And, of course, they believe that they put enough emphasis on ethics by having a three-hour course in ethics, second or third year of law school. Of course, all professors will say they treat ethics in their courses, and they do. But my suggestion has been that the first year of law school concentrate on the ethics of law and touch on the other subjects rather than the other way around, because I think that ethics should be, it's not, but it should be the foundation of a law school uh, degree. Not all law school graduates practice law. Uh, it's a good background for most any, uh, any other work to go to law school if you can afford it. But all people who get law degrees should be steeped in ethics, not just introduced to ethics. So my point is that, oh, and I applaud this program. I don't know when I've listened. I'm a fan of public radio, and I don't know when I've listened to a program that every word I think was valuable, including the comments of, the, of you who are, who are conducting the program. So thank you very much for that. The, the public needs this education as much as the lawyers do, and that's your job to educate the public. But I think that the emphasis on ethics as a foundation for the license, that powerful license to practice law, uh, should be emphasized more. And I don't know how to make that happen, except that maybe if the public realized that the reason our profession has such a poor reputation is because there are a few lawyers out there who don't understand ethics. One last point. My favorite, oh, somebody mentioned that there were some portions of the code of ethics that they that they thought was 
were really important. The one that I've emphasized when I've given lectures on ethics, <laughs> to the surprise of a lot of lawyers sitting there, is the one which said that if you're before a tribunal or you're uh, talking to a, a – uh, let's see, am I still on? Yes, you are, Roger. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, if you're before a judge or a tribunal and the opposite counsel fails to advise the court of a case against your own client, then you are obligated as a matter of ethics. As an advocate for your client, you are still obligated as a matter of ethics to point out to the judge that opposite counsel has failed to note a case against your own client. And so you're obligated to do that. Well, now, when I've lectured and given that, that citation to our code, uh, <laughs> the surprise of the lawyers in the, in the class in the CLE class, for example, teaches me that they did not learn enough about ethics in their law school. So that's my point. I wish you'd talk about that particular uh, ethical consideration for lawyers because good lawyers will do that. I mean, the other lawyer fails to cite a case that's against your own client. You're obligated to say, well, Judge, I'm sorry. Uh, I must inform the court that honorable opposite counsel has failed to cite you know, so I could go on and on about that, and I have in some of my writings, but please comment. Thank, thank you, Roger. We'll have, uh, thank you for your call. We'll have Adam, why don't you address that last point, then we'll see what uh, former dean, uh, Professor Gershon, has to say about ethics in the in the uh, college. Uh, and Roger, thank you for your call, and I do know you will, and I, and I appreciate you listening and be a part of it. Roger's been uh, very active in supporting things uh, related to the bar, and uh, as are so many of our members uh, across the state. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I try to remind attorneys of is their highest obligation, and uh, it's because of the uh, the way the, the system works, it's easy to think that your highest obligation is to the client, and you certainly have a very high obligation. But your highest obligation is to the system of justice, to the Supreme Court, to the court that you were in. Uh, we as lawyers have taken an oath to uphold several things, the system of justice, our Constitution. Uh, and so these these things are important. So he's absolutely right. If you are aware of authority, legal authority that is counter to your own client, and the other side fails to bring it up, your obligation to the court is to let them know that that also exists. Now, a good lawyer is going to position it as best they can and say maybe why they don't think it applies. But nonetheless, uh, that obligation does exist. All right. And before we get to Dortha and Greta, uh, Professor Gershon, uh, any chance you could add uh, six, uh, nine more hours of ethics classes to the uh, law school curriculum? You know that's a, it's a great question, Liz, and I wish we I, you know the law school could be you know six or seven years probably if we if we wanted to, but I, I think Roger makes a good point. And what we try to do, the you know we 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 really do try to find a balance. We have a wonderful program that the bar actually uh, puts together for us, the James O. Duke's Professionalism Program. Every entering student uh, has a half day program on ethics. They the uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court talks to them first, and then they meet in breakout groups with practicing lawyers about professionalism, because it's about more about more than about ethics. It's about professionalism as well. Uh, the bar comes back and talks to students about their bar applications and how important it is for them to be honest on their bar applications and forthright. Um, and so we have several opportunities throughout uh, their first year and beyond where they touch 
we have touchstone moments for them to, to talk about ethics. We do try to cover ethics in all, in all of our classes. I, I teach the ethics class, so I know we, we do talk about the rule that says you have to report uh, contrary authority that the other side didn't talk about. Um, and so, you know, at the core, we really do uh, try to expose the students early and often to their professional responsibility. Well, fantastic. Well, we are so glad that we have uh, callers uh, this morning we have from Natchez. Dorothy has a question. Go ahead, Dorothy. You're on in legal terms. Thank you. Um, I was uh, calling because, uh, thank you for having me on. My father had a vested, as he passed, it'll soon be five years. And the law, we found out that the lawyer he was using uh, filed bankrupt. And we did not know this until about a week ago. And I was just wondering, uh, so it, it, it was transferred to a, another company in Pasagoula, Mississippi. And they said that uh, they can't do anything until it goes to court. And it may be one or two years or something like that. Is there anything that we can do or how can we find out uh, if this is really true or not? Because they should have let us know this. They didn't write us or tell us anything about this. And I feel like they had an obligation, I feel, to have let us know what was going on. And we just found it out. And October be five years that my father had passed. Okay, Dorothy? Well, and I'm, I'm so sorry about your father's passing in, in this difficult situation. I, I'm not uh, sure how a lawyer's bankruptcy should impact anything else regarding the cases, but if you know, a lawyer's obligated to te- keep a client uh, reasonably informed as to the status of a case. And when you have a case like this that uh, sounds like it's gone on for a long time and those types of cases do, it may very well be a class action case, so it's not just your father who was a victim, but there are other people that were uh, impacted as well, that that can have an impact, uh, you know, for an extended period of time. And it sounds like you've already experienced that. Uh, I would communicate with the attorney uh, in writing. Uh, if, if you've already had difficulty hearing from them, one of the things we suggest is to send a letter certified return receipt requested. That gives you proof that you sent the communication, I would keep a copy of the letter and send it and ask for an update and a response and see where things are. If you've already gotten some type of notification that that lawyer is withdrawing from the case or is unable to represent you, then you know your next best bet would be to get legal counsel to talk to someone else about it. Uh, you know, there, There's too many different things that could be going on for me to give you a blanket you know, recommendation on how to proceed. But certainly if you can't get in front of your own lawyer, getting in front of another one to get it assessed is, is, is the start to seeing what you should do next. Dorothy, I'm sorry we weren't able to give you more uh, explicit and specific information, uh, but uh, the return receipt requested is always a good advice when you need to get information uh, from someone. Uh, we have another call who has been waiting for quite a long time. We're so glad that uh, uh, Greta has called in from Winona. Thank you for holding, Greta. What is your question for In Legal Terms today? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I have two questions, uh, or a, a question related to the components of a conservatorship, setting up a conservatorship for parents. Uh, there are two individuals in this case that could have served as the conservatorship. The parents asked that one be the conservator. Uh, the mother and the uh, 
one of the individuals went to the attorney's office to set that up. At the attorney's office, the attorney made the recommendation that it should not be this person that they uh, wanted to set up because that person was on the other side of the country. Um, and so, you know, my mother's, you know, going to take the attorney's advice, of course, and so they set it up for the person that was close geographically to the, uh, the person that was being uh, taken care of. And uh, my issue there is that if you're paying for it, it ended up being a lot of mismanagement with the conservatorship. And so my, my question is, if it had been done the way that we went in to do that, then there uh, wouldn't have been the mismanagement. But if you're paying for the things that you're supposed to be paying for, it doesn't matter where you're writing the check from is what I'm concerned about. Uh, the other issue regarding that is um, having to do with the an attorney should, I think, advise someone that they're setting up a conservatorship with as to what their uh, responsibilities are, you know, reporting to the court annually, things like that. And none of that was done, apparently. So those are the two questions having to do with uh, advice of, you know, an alternative conservator and the responsibilities for uh, explaining the duties. Okay, Greta, we'll let Adam answer that. Uh, One quick follow-up question. Mismanagement on behalf of the person that was appointed to be the conservator or mismanagement on behalf of the attorney? Oh, I'm sorry. It was uh, mismanagement of the person um, in the account. Okay, okay. The family member, yes. You know, this is a question of law uh, and beyond the scope. I, I will tell you, you know, as you know, an attorney's obligation, of course, is to represent the conservatorship, not represent you, not pr- represent you know the the other people involved, but the person who which needs the needs that that protection, and so that person is going to be making those decisions based upon just what what little you've been able to tell us in the short time we've got. Um, you know, having a conservator that is more local uh, certainly is going to be beneficial uh, in a lot of practical ways. So that that would seem to to make some sense. Um, really, if, if if someone has been inappropriate in how they've handled that conservatorship, who whoever eventually took on that role, that is a matter for the court uh, to consider. Uh, and and you know, speaking to the attorney about possibly bringing that before the court, making a change, those kind of things uh, is is really what's in order there. That doesn't really strike me as an ethics uh, question, uh, but more a question of law. All right. Uh, it, it is when you're in the middle of a situation, I'm sure it's hard to parse out uh, what if you're upset about the rule of law, if you feel that uh, attorney was uh, was not in it, did not act uh, ethically himself. When you're unhappy with the result, it is hard to see anything else. I think all attorneys should uh, have the misfortune of needing to be a client at some point. Um, so that you can really see what it's like uh, to to feel those feels uh, and try to navigate through them. But I think it makes it makes us better lawyers. All right. Well, we're going to take one final break today. Uh, this is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. And when we come back from our break, let's talk about uh, if someone does have, they feel that their uh, attorney had, and they want to file a complaint about their attorney, what should they do? This is MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We're glad that you called in. You're listening in, and you've called in today. Today, uh, we've got Professor Richard Gerson from the University of Mississippi Law School, and our guest today is General Counsel for the Mississippi Bar Association, and his name is Adam Kilgore. And we've been talking about, you know, it's kind of hard to to, to parse out, but we've been talking about attorney ethics. So, uh, did your attorney? Uh, represent you to the extent of the rules that he's required to follow. So, uh, Alan, uh, I'm sorry, Adam, if someone did feel like their attorney uh, did not act professionally, what is their what what are the steps they go through? Sure. Uh, If you go to the bar's website, msbar.org, there's information about how to file a bar complaint. There's frequently asked questions. There's some information there, and that would be under ethics. Uh, the other, uh, there's not, you can't get a bar complaint through that process, but you can find out more about it. The best way to get a bar complaint would be to contact the bar's consumer assistance program. And that phone number is 601-948-2344. Something we like to brag about. We were the first in the country to have one of these. There are now roughly half the jurisdictions in the, in the United States that uh, have ethics, and all offices do, uh, all, all states do, excuse me, uh, now do this. And so the function of that program is to talk to the person who has that concern and do some of what we've already done on, on, on the radio today, which is try to parse through between is this me being upset about or concerned about the underlying legal matter, or is this actually a potential ethics violation. So you're replacing our whole show we, with we, a phone number. We replaced it 20-something years ago. But I'm sorry. we will have that phone number on our website. Good, this you. show should be online later today, and we'll have that phone number great, on there. Great, great. And so the, the function of the Consumer Assistance Program, if you know, back in the day, if someone had a concern, my attorney won't return my telephone calls, they would contact the bar. We'd send them a bar complaint form. Well, if they're calling for that purpose, and, and expressing the concern, what is it do they, that they want? They want their lawyer to return their call. So now, if you contact the Consumer Assistance Program and express that concern, we can then communicate with the lawyer, letter, email, maybe even by telephone, say, hey, this person is your client, or they think they're, they are your client, and they want you to return their call. And that is much more efficient and quicker uh, way for things to go forward instead of having a bar complaint do it and takes the time that it takes and mm-hmm. then discipline's imposed and mm-hmm. what did we get? So we're you know, that program's not designed to prevent bar complaints, but if it's allowed to do its job, then it's going to prevent unnecessary ones because we at the end of the day we want people to be receive the services that are expected to receive and that lawyers do so in an ethical and professional manner. Okay, well, we'll have that phone number. Uh, Jackie and Zach, I'm not sure that we'll be able to get to your calls, but we do have time for uh, the from the Gulf Coast. Justine is calling. Go ahead. You're on in legal terms. If your lawyer has already uh, declared bankruptcy and was barred, disbarred, what do you do then? I assume you're asking about filing a bar complaint against the person that's disbarred? I have no idea. I, all I know is that he gave me phony paper claiming that he owned property, including in Mississippi. 
And uh, it, I had it notarized. So what is the point in having it notarized if none of it's any good? Okay. Uh, I hope this answers your question. A, a lawyer that's disbarred, unless they're permanently disbarred, they can apply for reinstatement later. And we handle one to two of those a year. So if someone's already been suspended or disbarred, you are still eligible to file a bar complaint for the, against them if for nothing else it could impact them should they decide to apply for reinstatement. As a practical matter, they may choose not to, but that is something at least for a way to get your voice heard. One of the things that frustrates people, and, and it's understandable, is the bar complaint process is only designed to assess and, and if there's proof, impose discipline if there's an ethics violation. It's not going to have any effect on the underlying case. So regardless of what might happen with a bar complaint, let's say there's serious discipline results, the underlying case is still going to go forward in whatever fashion that it does. And whether the attorney was suspended or disbarred or not, as a practical matter, won't really have any effect. Is there a way to find out if an attorney has had a discipline history? Yes. Uh, we have confidentiality rules set forth by the Supreme Court that limit us on providing information, but you can contact the Mississippi Bar and ask if someone has any public disciplinary history. So that would include public reprimands, suspensions, disbarments. We can't tell you how many bar complaints someone has had filed against them. A bar complaint that's dismissed is deemed expunged. So there, you know, we, we are limited in, in what we can say, but in my opinion, what matters is the information that's out there. How many bar complaints someone has received is not the test. If you do personal injury work, domestic, criminal work, you're more likely to get bar complaints. That's not necessarily an indicator of the lawyer being unethical. It can be just simply about the practice area that they're in, and it goes back to that fear and emotion that people have. Right, right. Well, Professor Gershon, you've got 30 seconds to finish us out. Well, I just want to say that, you know, in addition to the disciplinary process, if, if a lawyer uh, commits malpractice, then you know, the client can bring a civil suit against them, and that's really different from what the bar does in terms of ethics. All right. Well, we, uh, gosh, we could have done this show for about to three extra hours. Uh, thank you, Adam, for coming on to our show. Uh, the Mississippi Bar Association website, when I was getting ready for this show, it does have quite a lot of information. It lists out uh, the discipline process. It lists statistics about uh, bar complaints. And it, uh, it has the... Uh, guidelines for professional conduct so thank you so much for being on our show today my pleasure thank you so much to be sure if you want to hear this show again and to get some of the websites and phone numbers that we've talked about go to mpbonline.org slash in legal terms you can also download the mpb media app and listen on your smart device on demand our call screener today was michelle mcadoo and our board engineer was jay white for professor richard gershon i'm our producer liz gill up next is our tuesday southern remedy show relatively speaking join us again next tuesday at 10 for in legal terms on mpb think radio 